Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Priya David Clemens, in today for Mina Kim. When he was working as a college professor, author Jonathan Malesic says he listened to this Peter Gabriel-Kate Bush duet over and over, trying to overcome his work burnout. The experience led him to try and understand what he calls America's burnout culture. He joins us to talk about his new book, The End of Burnout, why work drains us, and how to build better lives. But first, Riverside County Congress member Mark Takano on his bill to create a 32-hour work week. That's next, after this. This is Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens. In today for Mina Kim. Last month, the Congressional Progressive Caucus endorsed a bill by California Representative Mark Takano that would create a 32-hour work week. The legislation doesn't prevent people from working more than 32 hours, but it would require overtime pay for those working beyond that threshold. Supporters say a shorter week would lead to higher productivity and lower unemployment. But the bill is expected to face stiff opposition. Mark Takano, a Democrat, represents California's 41st congressional district, which includes Riverside County. And he joins us now. Welcome, Congressmember Takano. Glad to be here. Thank you. So tell us, what do you think is wrong with the current standard 40-hour work week? Well, I think it... uh it doesn't really meet the really the demand and needs of our time in the 21st century. Uh, the original 40 hour work week, uh, the overtime pay, you know, uh, uh, requirements were set in 1935. And prior to that, it was not unusual for people to work way in excess of 40 hours. Uh, but since then uh, we've seen incredible increases in productivity of the American worker, changes in technology, uh, changes in the workforce. Um, you know, it's it's very, very common and usual to see uh, both uh, men and women uh, in a family. And of course, families aren't defined by just men and women anymore. But mm-hmm. let's say, you know, two income earners, uh, you know, you don't have one person at home to take care of uh uh, children or aging elders, for that matter. Uh, really, the times have uh, come to a. We, we, we're now living in a time uh, when I think the uh, shorter work week uh, makes a lot more sense and is even necessary. The pandemic really, I think, has brought home uh, 
uh, to many, many Americans uh, just how much more flexibility they need uh, in their work week. Why do you think we should go to 32 hours? How did you choose that number? Is that because there have been studies done on these four-day work weeks? Well, I think, uh, you know, 32 hours sort of matches a lot of where, uh, you know, in other for other ways in which government sort of addresses the work week. For example, the Affordable Care Act uh, actually sets 32 hours uh, as uh, a kind of level at which employers over a certain number have to provide, you know, healthcare insurance in terms of uh, offer it to their employees. Um, and, you know, it, it seems to be, uh, you know, the, the idea that, you uh, instead of a, a you know a full five-day work week that we have now that we would redefine it to to the four-day work week which is which is 32 hours and we also want it we're mindful that we didn't want to see a four-day work week become a four times 12 hour work week right so it's mm-hmm. like uh, try to try to distribute those hours on that from that fifth day over four days we you know I think the thir- the 32 hour work week makes it very clear about a new normal that we want to that we want to establish. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, your bill here is an idea that's pretty far to the left. It's unlikely to get passed soon, but it certainly provides us with the space to have more national conversation about a shorter work week. How do you think a 32 hour week would help America as a nation? Well, let's just say I, I think Americans work a lot of hours to begin with. They take, you know, shorter vacations. The terms on which people are hired in the first place often have very, very little paid vacation leave. Americans have virtually, uh, you know, very little across the workforce benefits in terms of paid family leave. Um, And uh, coming out of this pandemic, I think Americans uh, see a need for uh, greater childcare. We have seen childcare uh, providers just disappear during the pandemic. Um, we've seen uh, women, in particular, bear the brunt uh, of the uh, the the increased uh, burden of of caring for family members during uh, the pandemic, with schools closing and uh, providers, childcare providers disappearing. Uh, I think I think we see we'll see uh, a greater work-life balance achieved, but also uh, the ways in which we can assist Americans in in caring for children and uh, aging elders. Uh, this is all. This is all. I think going to add up to uh, I think healthier Americans, uh, perhaps even lower healthcare costs as Americans are able to take care of their health better uh, because. Uh, they're achieving a greater balance between uh, their work life and their health. Yeah. And we've certainly seen this idea piloted in other places. Uh, Iceland, for example, I think Spain has done a pilot. And there have been companies here in the U.S., even one here in San Francisco, Bolt, that just a few weeks ago announced it was permanently going to four a uh, four-day work week. Uh, but generally, these have been pilots. What are we learning here in the business community about how this plays out for employees and for the employers? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I didn't know about Bolt, but I did know about uh, about Kickstarter. Um, I also know about experiments that uh, I think Microsoft, uh, mm-hmm. an experiment Microsoft did in Japan. Um, and we also know that uh, there are experiments going on in New Zealand. Um, and the, the Scottish Parliament actually is moving forward with uh, actually uh, assistance, providing some sort of funding to assist businesses in moving to a shorter work week. And what we're learning is that in many of these experiments that uh, there, there is no reduction in productivity. So productivity equals or maybe even exceeds uh, the, uh, the current 40-hour four, 40 work, work week. It's, these conversations are largely happening, and I think the tech industries, uh, highly skilled workers, um, are where this conversation uh, are the people who are having this conversation. I think most intensely, um, and I think what we all what we're learning is that um, there is a a point at which increasing the number of work hours does not create better software, um, does not mean more productivity from workers um, and that employers uh, when they're competing for a very limited pool of highly skilled workers there's a saturation point at which uh, you know more money doesn't seem to be an attracting attractive point mm-hmm. it's, it's it's more flexible work hours or less work hours um, and so uh, this is actually uh, I think a very opportune moment to actually introduce this legislation at a moment where we're seeing workers, not just in the tech industry, but across pretty much all, all labor market sectors, uh, that employers are finding it very, very difficult to retain, attract, uh, attract and retain employees. Uh, this, I, I think, uh, is the, the right moment to give workers more leverage in terms of uh, negotiating with employers, um, and I think to 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 make all employers, everybody aware that uh, that this is a this is a fairly widespread conversation. It's happening most intensely in, in places like San Francisco uh, and New York, uh, where there's a lot of tech and financial services and you know professions and the professions. Uh, but my bill really. It ironically doesn't affect a lot of these very salaried uh, these salaried workers. It affects, you know, hourly workers. Uh, but I I think it's really really uh, the, it, there's a lot of momentum behind having the conversations occur, you know, among among all workers. We're talking with Congressmember Mark Takano, author of legislation to create a 32-hour work week. A Democrat, he represents California's 41st congressional district, which includes Riverside County. What do you think of the 32-hour work week plan? Email us now to forum at kqed.org. That's forum at kqed.org. And we have a comment here from Bill who wrote in, If you really think companies would be more productive with a shorter work week, why bother to mandate it? If some companies try it and succeed, they'll set an example that other companies will follow. Congressmember Takano, your thoughts? Well, you know, the the uh, the listeners' comments are 
are on point as far as what's going to ha- what's happening now. Many companies are moving forward uh, with it now. Uh, however, I-, I think it's important to have uh, discussions that uh, include equity for all workers. Um, and uh, you know, just as you know, in yesteryear, uh, people were horrified at the idea that children would be working. Uh, or that people would work more than 40 hours a week that, that seemed to be inhumane. Um, I think, I think what's emerging is a, is a new consensus and new standard. And uh, in it's time that we uh, look at reforming the fair labor standards act of 1935 uh, to move from a 40 hour work week to a 32 hour work week for a number of reasons. Uh, let me just add there's another thing besides the work-life balance. We also know that uh, Saturday and Sunday, we, we just burn less carbon. Uh, and uh, think about uh, what would happen if we added an additional day where we just burned less carbon. Okay. So less potentially carbon. The, the climate impacts of it as well. You know, we, unfortunately, we only have just a few moments left here together. But I do want to read another comment that came in and see if you've got, you know, just a couple of thoughts on it in the last few moments here. Jack writes, I'm wondering whether others like me are given 30 to 39 hour work weeks. This prevents me from receiving full time benefits. Well, as I said, the, the Affordable Care Act uh, already says that uh, employees of companies that have a certain number of employees are already entitled under law to be offered uh, those company benefits at 32 hours. So that that already sort of exists. And many, many employees already receive uh, less than 40 hours of work. They're working two jobs or more. Uh, that's not going to affect them. But remember, we're in a very tight labor market right now. Uh, and so uh, an employer is going to think twice about reducing numbers. Yep. Uh, reducing hours. All right. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Congress member Mark Takano, author of legislation to create a 32-hour work week, a Democrat. He represents California's 41st congressional district. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. With historic numbers of people quitting their jobs, there's no question that American workers are frustrated. But according to author Jonathan Malesic, the country's burnout crisis goes much deeper than the pandemic. A former college professor, he's the author of a new book, The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. He joins us now to talk about the history of Americans' dysfunctional relationship with work and how to fix what he calls our burnout culture. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. So 
Tell us about what you call a dysfunctional relationship with work. We've just wrapped up a conversation with Congressmember Mark Takano, who has uh, legislation pending for a 32-hour work week. Do you think that would help with our relationship with work to work fewer hours? Definitely. Yeah, I I loved what uh, Congressmember Takano was saying. And what I think would help so much is that a shorter standard work week you know, with without a, a reduction in pay, I think that that's got to be crucial, um, would allow work to take up less space in our lives and afford us more leisure time uh, to pursue other projects that are meaningful to us. Uh, and I think that when when that happens, then, you know, burnout is reduced and, you know, like you mentioned, um, burning carbon it would, would also be reduced. And so that I think that would be a huge benefit. So what is burnout? Through your research, which was academic in nature, um, what did you find about the historical, psychological, cultural roots of what burnout is? Yeah, my definition of burnout most broadly is that it's the chronic experience of being stretched across a gap between your ideals for work and the reality of your job. And that manifests itself in three ways that psychologists identify, uh, exhaustion, cynicism, and a sense of ineffectiveness or that your work just doesn't accomplish anything. And there are really close ties between the history of this concept of burnout and the Bay Area, um, the, there were two psychologists who were working independently, uh, Herbert Freudenberger and Christina Maslach, who are the, the real pioneers of burnout research and identified this phenomenon in the early to mid-1970s. Mm-hmm. And Freudenberger was based in New York City, but he uh, visited the uh, Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic and studied it and wanted to set up a free clinic of his own in New York. And he did that. And in 1973 or 74, he started publishing about this problem that the free clinic volunteers called burnout. And then he went on to kind of theorize that. At the same time, Christina Maslach was beginning her research on burnout uh, on by interviewing poverty attorneys and social workers and counselors in the Bay Area. Uh, She has been, you know, for 50 years almost, uh, a faculty member at at UC Berkeley. And so, you know, these, that history, I think, is really interesting that, you know, burnout was this cultural phenomenon that appeared in the early 70s. And these two thinkers working with different methods discovered kind of discovered quote unquote at the same time what are some of the telltale signs of burnout yeah i mean so i uh, the those three dimensions of burnout that psychologists used uh to study the phenomenon um so the the first and probably the one that we're most familiar with is exhaustion I think that many of us know what it means to be exhausted, though I should add that the exhaustion of burnout is not 
the same as, you know, just being tired at the end of a work week or you finish a large project or something like that. It's a kind of exhaustion that persists even after rest. Um, the second aspect of burnout is cynicism or sometimes called depersonalization. And that's where you start to see your coworkers, your clients, your students, and so on as problems, as obstacles, and less as people. Uh, and then the third main dimension is the sense of ineffectiveness that your work just isn't accomplishing anything. You know, when I was uh, going through burnout as a college professor, I was convinced that my students weren't learning anything from me. Mm -hmm. And that just led to tremendous despair. You just mentioned that you yourself experienced burnout, which led to your interest in researching the topic and eventually writing this book. Would you take us through that journey that you experienced and what burnout felt like to you and how you came out the other side? Sure. Yeah. So to be a college professor, and I, I had a you know, graduate degree in religious studies, uh, was my dream for my you know for a, a decade basically from the time I was about 20 years old uh, to the time I finally got the job at about age 30 and um, you know I expected this job to totally fulfill me as I think many American workers do we we believe that well if we just get our dream job then everything is going to be great in our life and that was true at times when I was doing this job. And one of the topics that I was interested in, both in my research and in my teaching, was the way that work raises these questions about ethics and meaning and spirituality and stuff like that. And so I, I designed and taught a class called Why Work. After about seven or eight years in the job, though, that question became a lot more than academic to me. Mm -hmm. It became a question that I faced every morning when I woke up and had to go to this job that I once loved, but now started to hate. Uh, I, you know, I read and yeah, I read in your um, work that you were able, you were in a position, you're fortunate to be able to leave your job and follow your wife to a new position in a new state and um, eventually sort of work through that feeling of burnout. Did you did you go back to teaching? Were you able to get back to that sort of dream job or did you find there was just a, a mismatch between what you thought it was going to be and what it turned out to be? And is that truly burnout? Yeah, well, there there was definitely a mismatch between what I thought the job was going to be and what it was. So I thought it was going to be, you know, the life of the mind hmm. um, and, you know, debating questions of the meaning of life with students and all of that. And I did some of that, but it was also, you know, the workload was a lot uh, and I ended up doing, you know, there's always meetings and there's a lot of paperwork and just all this extra stuff that, and the students, you know, didn't always, they didn't always respond the way <laughs> that they would. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do love teaching. You know, I kind of don't believe in dream jobs anymore. Um, and after, uh, yeah, as you said, you know, I, I quit the job. Uh, I followed my wife's career to Texas. And 
I, you know, decided to remake my career around writing, but I missed the classroom and I missed having people depending on me to exercise my skills and do a good job. So I started to teach part-time. So now I teach as an adjunct uh, at a local university and that the stakes are so much lower. You know, I don't expect that job to totally fulfill me. I, it, I don't view it as my dream job. It's something I like doing. It's something I hope I'm at least sometimes good at. And it provides that structure and it provides uh, a, a sense of, you know, that I, that I am accomplishing something. And that's, I think, you know, that lowering the stakes of work, I think, is the key to, you know, fighting burnout. We're talking with Jonathan Malesic, the author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Have you felt burned out before? How did you deal with it? And how can employers better support burnt out workers? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Dana writes in saying, burnout culture has been pretty prominent, especially in the Bay Area. So much emphasis is put on hustling and working hard to be successful. I think advancements in tech have made many types of work so much more efficient, but the result is largely workers being expected to put out even more volume of work. When the pandemic hit, for many remote workers like myself, even though there's been less commuting, that time has been replaced with longer work hours at home. And Jonathan, would you comment on that about how the pandemic has maybe spotlighted what burnout means and how it looks in our lives? Yeah, I mean, the pan- the during the pandemic, uh, the well, first of all, of course, it, it disrupted virtually everyone's work in one way or another, whether they lost their job or they started working from home, often as an unpaid teacher's aide as well. Uh, and it, it made the work of many frontline workers much more dangerous and intense. And in response to that, burnout has become one of our go-to terms mm-hmm. to make sense of what has happened. And yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the, the writer has said that, you know, it's the expectations have not diminished. Uh, the expectations of productivity, the expectations of availability have largely, you know, remained the same or, or increased. Um, we haven't, the, the pandemic has not reset our expectations of, of, of how much work should be uh, a part of our lives in, in many cases. I mean, I don't know, I guess I'm of, of sort of two minds. I think that probably experience is, is, is pretty varied. And, you know, I think that there are, at the same time, there are, there is a, a push uh, among workers to make use of their new found market power and, you know, push for shorter hours and, and more reasonable schedules, perhaps because uh, the pressure from employers has often not, not, not uh, decreased. I want to go to another comment here from Hernan, who writes, I'm a grad student at the Americans Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. 
I've recently learned that rest is a vital part of my artistic process. I used to find myself constantly burned out because the training was so rigorous. I would feel unmotivated and thus procrastinate on my school assignments. I started to not have fun anymore with acting, and that scared me. Luckily, my therapist gave me tools to integrate rest in my hectic and packed schedule, like going for a short walk, taking a quick coffee break or nap, etc., and not feeling guilty about it, which is, of course, another piece of that puzzle. But, you know, I think my question here is, are there ways in which we can stay in our jobs and find new joy in our jobs and reinvigorate our work lives? Or is it a matter generally of stepping back and doing less and finding that joy outside of work? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that both are possible. So I have like a kind of yes, but answer. Uh, Yes, I think that it is possible to to change the way that you're to to prevent or heal your own burnout while remaining within your job. Um, the but is there's not it, it's not an individual process. You can't do it yourself, and there's not a, a hack. There is not a, hmm. a meditation program. Um, there's not a like you know, protocol where you're going to just like not answer email after 5 p.m. or whatever, you can't do it yourself. It has to be, what has to happen is the the nature of your work has to change in some way. So why is that? Yeah, the reason is that you did not cause your own burnout. And so you can't fix your own burnout yourself. The causes of burnout are not some problem within the individual but rather it's a much more systemic problem to do with organizations. So, you know, your specific workplace has a huge role in determining whether and how you burn out uh, because they set the standards of your job. They set the expectations. And then on an even bigger scale, there's our entire culture where, uh, you know, like you'd you'd mentioned before, you know, the hustle culture Mm -hmm. or the, you know, this culture of productivity and proving ourselves and finding so much of our self-worth through our work. And so it, it's going to take a much bigger effort and a much more collective effort to solve burnout uh, on a larger scale. And then hopefully individual workers will feel the benefit of that. Could you share with us a little of how race and gender play into your analysis and your work? Because we all do have varied experiences of work here in America. Yeah. And the, the, it's certainly true that burnout, it cuts across racial, gender, class uh, categories. Um, you know, everyone is susceptible to burnout. Um, and there's more research on burnout and gender than there is on burnout and race. Um, I have not seen studies indicating that there are huge differences between how people of different races experience burnout. Mm. But that said, there's not there's not a huge a ton of research of studies, <laughs> yeah. right? That, yeah. that take that into account. There's a lot of good research on burnout and gender. Um, particularly in healthcare fields where burnout is a great concern and they have, you know, the, the resources uh, and the, the, uh, to, to address it or to investigate it anyway. Um, and what you see is that 
women are more, generally speaking, more susceptible to burnout than men, you know, all other things being equal. Um, but what there's also interesting pattern, different patterns in how women and men experience burnout. So you remember those three major aspects of burnout, exhaustion, cynicism, and ineffectiveness. Women are more likely to experience burnout as exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And men are more likely to experience it as cynicism. And partly, I think that that reflects the different social scripts that women and men follow. Uh, you know, I, I think about how the, you know, like a, the, the brusque physician or, you know, the hard-boiled detective, you know, these are male archetypes where cynicism is kind of normalized. Um, and, you know, the, so I think that that is, is a little indication of how our cultural expectations, including our expectations of masculinity and femininity, play into how we experience burnout. You mentioned that you don't believe in dream jobs anymore. What's your advice for those who are starting out in the workforce and uh, how should they avoid burnout? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, so I, I do teach college students, uh, you know, to this day. And I, I, I look at them and I, I see people who are often very eager to work hard. They, they want to you know, prove themselves and the way that, you know, professional careers are structured, there's often a lot of pressure on those youngest employees to, to put in long hours to prove themselves and earn promotions and, and all of that. And I guess that I, I would want them not to lose sight of the fact that, you know, frankly, there's more to life and they've got, they have a long career ahead of them. And they, they need to find ways and maybe find jobs where their work is, is a lesser part of their lives. We're talking with Jonathan Malesic, the author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Have you felt burned out before? How did you deal with it? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens. In today for Mina Kim, we're talking with Jonathan Malesic, the author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Let's go to the phones now. 
caller Paula is on the line with us. Paula, you're a small business owner. I am, yes. I own uh, Chilelindo, a small empanada deli in the Mission uh, Bakery. And I'm listening to this, and it's interesting because I really want to, it seems like the small business owner is never in the discussion until it's closed, mm. which is what we're seeing in all, all throughout the city where the small business owners are all definitely suffering of burned out. Uh, I re- I listened to this and I said, oh, my God, this is exactly all the symptoms that I've been feeling. You know, you, you rest, but somehow it's not enough to get you motivated and to feel that you can get back to the swing of things. But while you're resting, you're feeling guilty that you are taking time off when you have this mountain of things that are still pending. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't, you, you no longer have joy about your business. Let's not forget that we are responsible for people's payroll. So it's not so easy to just say, Oh, I'm going to close for a week or two weeks when you if you can't afford to pay the employees while you're away. So you have to keep the business open. I, I, I can't even tell you how many years a small business owner goes without a vacation, not one year, but it can easily go into five years where they've not taken a break, not to mention what we've dealt with since the pandemic, how we've had to get creative and how many sources in the in, in the hospitality business that are coming at us. You, before it was stressful, just employees, customers, the city regulations that are clearly clearly made up by people that have never ran a restaurant in this city, Uh, the homelessness that now it's become mental illness that are attacking us at our doors, especially my location, which is 16th and Cap, which is extremely challenging. The graffiti that we're responsible, that we have to clean, the parklets that now were supposed to help us, the laws are now changing us. We have to remake them, rebuild them. And they become homeless shelters overnight. So it's at least an hour, two hours a day. Paula, Paula, I hear the frustration in your voice. I hear the absolute um, struggle that you are dealing with day in and day out. And Jonathan, I think this really goes to the heart of this, that we can talk very rationally about the concept of burnout. But what people are feeling is so visceral and is so hard to deal with. It feels like such a burden and one they feel they have to keep carrying. How do you respond to people like Paula who feel they're in a no-win situation? Yeah, I really appreciate uh, Paula sharing those frustrations uh, that that she faces as a small business owner. And I I agree that we probably don't pay enough attention. It's it's a little easier to study burnout uh, in bigger organizations than in smaller ones. And I would say that, yes, there's this the the real challenge of a small business is that there there there's there are fewer hands to kind of pick up the slack uh, if you know someone needs a vacation or something like that. At the same time, I think that small businesses have a great opportunity to rethink how they operate precisely because they're small. They 
know their employees very well. Um, they know their coworkers, they know their customers very well, and can start honest, uh, you know, intimate conversations about how they're doing business. Uh, and that, that conversation can include uh, customers and, and other stakeholders too. You know, how, they're, how the business is operating, what the workers uh, and customers experience is, and try to figure out new ways of doing it so that everyone the customers, the staff, the owner, and others in the neighborhood can see not just the business thrive financially, but everyone associated with it thrive in a human way. Another uh, person who works here wrote in saying, how does this apply to teachers? So many of us are burnt out, but we can't have a shorter work week without major shifts in the larger society. As a public elementary school teacher, we are working within broken systems that have little chance to reform. Our classes are too large. Our jobs involve too many responsibilities outside of teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And yet society relies on us to raise the next generation. That's from Sammy. Thanks for writing in. And let's go to the phones with Corey next. Corey, you have a comment about the differences between men and women uh, that uh, earlier Jonathan had been mentioning. Yeah, um, it's no wonder that women are more susceptible in the form of, to burnout in the form of exhaustion because all things are not equal. You said all things being equal, they're not equal. Um, all the research tells us that women do the lion's share of childcare and housework. In 2020, women did three times as much childcare as men. Um, that was an article in Fortune. Um, there's other research that shows that men think they're doing half the work. And when researchers will say that they are definitely not, there's a 2015 study by the Pew Research Center. All things are not equal. And I, I'd love to know how they were measuring that. But um, I don't think that if all things were equal, women would be um, more susceptible to burnout. I think women have pressures on them that are not in the calculus. I think, you know, what's interesting here is we're also generally talking about burnout in the context of paid employment. And certainly uh, housework falls outside of that. And yet working in the home, working with children in the home, working with elderly, that can certainly cause burnout as well. Jonathan, did you do any uh, looking into this burnout in areas outside of paid employment? Yeah, and uh, one area where the the research is is I think is early, but I think promising uh, is with parental burnout. So there's researchers uh, in Belgium who have developed a parental burnout scale, basically uh, that's modeled on the one that Christina Maslach developed for paid employment, and the yeah there the the pattern uh, that I mentioned before persists as well, that uh, mothers are, you know, they, they score higher on that scale than fathers do generally. Though, the, again, there are also some different patterns there. And yeah, I mean, the way that that research works is they, you know, take a lot of demographic information and they do the, the burnout survey and, and other things that they want to compare. And uh, they, they sort of isolate gender as um, as much as possible as the one factor. And even when you're just looking at the differences in gender, women are scoring higher, likely for uh, some of the reasons that uh, the caller mentioned. Um, one one kind of interesting finding in that research is that uh, even 
under similar levels of parental stress, though, um, men experience seemed uh, fathers, I should say specifically, experience the 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 symptoms of burnout much earlier, and they respond to it much worse. Hmm. Uh, so, um, it, and I think that that speaks to the fact that you know, for the most part, still to this day, men are not socialized as well to accept the responsibility. Uh, well, to, to under, to appreciate what the, um, what the challenges and stresses of parenting are going to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's go to caller David in Los Angeles. David, you want to talk about fighting burnout on your own? Yeah, I just want to thank, thank you for the conversation. It's so welcome. It's the whole dialogue. And I want to push back a little bit on this kind of idea that we can't within our, on ourselves, um, really find tools that help us to gain balance. Um, I'm a story of being out of balance for you know, most of my 20s and 30s and finding a, a really old ancient meditation practice that actually rests the body two to five times deeper than sleep in 20 minutes of eyes closed meditation, sitting comfortably in your office chair, on your couch, and your, your, your headboard in your bed. I do it twice a day. And it is very, very much profoundly affected the way that I modulate and regulate and in a bigger picture, it helps me make better decisions about what kind of things I should take on in terms of jobs and responsibilities and commitments in my life. Um, but you can do the research on it. It's practiced by millions of people worldwide. And I'd recommend people finding a professional teacher that knows what they're doing, that's been teaching it for a while, and um, and getting uh, getting versed in it. Because meditation, absolutely, not all meditation is, is, is equal. By all means, there's lots of kind of fluffy meditation apps and things out there that aren't really going to have that much of an impact. But I and I and hundreds of people I know, friends of mine, uh, practice this technique, and it definitely helps us keep ourselves balanced and restored um, on a physiological level. David, thank you for that call. You're listening to Forum. We're talking with Jonathan Malesic, the author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us, and How to Build Better Lives. I'm Priya David Clemens, in today for Mina Kim. And Jonathan, you talked about meditation in your book. Um, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on if how effective that is for managing burnout. Yeah, I mean, it's good to hear that, uh, you know, the caller was able to, you know, to find such benefit from meditation. Uh, and, you know, where I've looked to find ways beyond burnout are in communities where people have, as a group, decided on how their work is going to fit into their lives. And one group that I uh, spent a chapter on are uh, Catholic Benedictine religious. Uh, So there's this monastery uh, that I visited in New Mexico. Uh, It's a really fascinating place. And what the monks there do is they, they, their priority is on Prayer, so mostly communal prayer, which they do five or six hours a day, but also individual prayer and meditation, and that doesn't leave a whole lot of time for work. So they work generally three or four hours a day in the morning, and when the bell rings for them to return to the chapel to get together to pray again, they stop what they're doing, and they do the thing that matters more to them. And I asked one of the monks, 
uh, who, by the way, had worked as a defense attorney before going to the monastery. So he had he had had a, a very demanding career. I asked him, well, what happens when you get to the end of that work period and it feels like your work is undone? And he responded very directly, you get over it. Hmm. And I thought that, you know, just getting over it is itself a spiritual discipline hmm. that is in very short supply. I mean, we've already talked a, a couple of times about guilt and anxiety that we feel all the time, even when we're not at work. And somehow or another, uh, we've got to figure out ways to get over it and recognize the work will be there when we get back to it, you know, tomorrow or, or whenever. Mm-hmm. I want to go to a couple more comments now. Lori has written in on Facebook that after escaping to Spain for a semester during the pandemic, we saw the American tendency towards burnout in stark contrast to how Spaniards live, pandemic or not. Now that we're back, we've been str- swimming upstream against the Bay Area tide of busyness to try to maintain our newfound quality of life with mixed results. And Joel has written in saying, isn't burnout part of the deal? I grew up on a farm. Everyone was burned out. I served in the military. Super burned out. Been working in finance, corporate America. Totally burned out. Show me a time that I wasn't burned out. I expect retirement to be my release. I think that framework that Joel is expressing there is fairly common. Yeah, I I think so. And um, I I would... You know, like you get some of these comments and you want to like kind of have a conversation with, with, with <laughs> yeah. the writer, you know, rather than just kind of like give a quick uh, answer. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, in the in the book, I, um, I I rely on Henry David Thoreau for some guidance, too. And, you know, Thoreau uh, wrote, you know, he his book Walden, we think of it as being about, you know, you know, nature and living in the woods and stuff like that. And it is, but it's also a really searing critique of the busyness and hustle culture of his time. And Thoreau really challenged this notion that, you know, we should work hard now and, you know, then get to enjoy our leisure later. Um, You know, we, the, the habits that we uh, develop during our working life are not going, you, know, you can't turn them off at age 65 and, you know, ha- immediately have the habits uh, of retirement. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're seeing in this country, many workers who are past retirement age who are going back to work and not out of financial necessity, but because they haven't developed the the habits that they need to practice leisure in a, a really sustainable and enjoyable way. They, they treat retirement like another job. Hmm. Let's go to the phones with caller Robert calling in. Robert, you were a corporate chef. What would you like to share today? Uh, yes. Can uh, you hear me? I can. You're calling in from Jenner, it looks like. Yes, I am. Well, um, my background, I was in five-star hotels as a chef, and um, it, was, it was akin to uh, just mass producing on a, on a production line. And um, I uh, left five-star hotels, and I took a leave of absence from my career as a chef, and I went to a monastery in Big Sur. Hmm. 
And um, anyhow, it turned out uh, a year later, after uh, I left the monastery, um, I opened up my own restaurant. And I, uh, one of the callers said before, where you're responsible for your employees and such, and it's like you just uh, it ended up being a chef, um, you know, um, six days a week working. It, it was, I already knew in hotels I got burned out. And then um, I, I used to surf as, as well, and I used to try and surf as much as I could, which was about five days a week. And I noticed even five days a week surfing, I got burned out on that. And so it just seems that if you do something off enough, often enough, you're going to, you're going to tend to have a certain amount of uh, burnout. But like I hike, and if I hike five days a week straight, I get burned out on that. So I think, in my perspective, that if you take a different route and you try to get a different experience that you hadn't had before, or you try to do something that you've always wanted to do that you never really attempted, or do something, whether go see a film or travel somewhere, it kind of alleviates because you're, mm. it's a new experience, and I think that might be a source of... Um, avoiding burnout and that's all i wanted to say robert thank you for your call it seems like he has a suggestion for this last part of your book title jonathan how to build better lives you know we just have a a minute or so left here any thoughts on on wrapping this up here about how we build better lives what should we do with all this knowledge yeah i mean i think that we have to take everything that we expect from work you know not just uh well you know I mean, the monetary stuff, perhaps it's hard to, to separate totally from work, but all of the immaterial stuff, that sense of dignity, of meaning, of purpose, and find those outside of work, uh, find them in leisure, in community, in other activities, and then we can fill work in around that. And I think what it's going to take is recognizing that my burnout is not just my problem, but your burnout is my problem, too. You've been listening to Forum. We've been talking with Jonathan Malesic, the author of The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Jonathan, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Priya. I'm Priya David Clemens. Mina Kim will be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.